Good is not a thing you are, it's a thing you do. Ladies and gentlemen, happy National Comic Book Day and welcome back to another episode of Gym Class All-Stars. We are your hosts, Alex and Robbie, here to deliver all things sports from this past week. We're gonna start right along with a week two recap of the NFL season, starting with the slightly disappointing Philadelphia Eagles playing the Los Angeles Rams. To me, the big highlight of this game, Tyler Higby had three touchdowns against that Eagles defense. Alex, your team's 0-2. You're struggling against some good teams, but teams you should be able to hang with and beat. 0-2, what's the main concern right now for the Eagles? Well, Robbie, after watching the game, I'm not even going to get mad. I'm going to stop slamming my desk. I'm going to cool myself off, make sure my blood pressure is normal. We'll be okay. But on the inside, I am infuriated. This sucks. The Eagles looked like garbage. Now, I think the Rams are a lot better than we give them credit for. But, oh, my goodness, the Eagles sucked. And their line – actually held up pretty well. But between Nathan Gary getting beat three different times by Tyler Higby, their defense was pretty much abysmal. Their offense was not great. And quite frankly, the score would have been even more of a blowout if they didn't get a lucky Cooper Cup fumble on a punt return. I am concerned. I will be very concerned if they lose to the Bengals this week. Let's pray that Joe Burrow does not have his first win against the Eagles or else it's going to be another bad week for yours truly. Well, I'll start by saying not slamming your desk shows great maturity on your end. So, so good job there. But on the, on the flip side, the Rams probably in the most competitive division in football right now with between them, the, the 49ers, the Seahawks and the, the Cardinals. So to get a win against you know, an early double digit win against a Philly team like this, what does that do for their confidence going forward? Well, it puts the league on notice because I think everyone thought the Eagles would be good. And the Rams have been looking back to their Super Bowl winning days where they just look like a cohesive unit. They look like all the question marks or all the issues they had last year are gone. Jared Goff looks like an absolutely elite quarterback. Their receivers are all clicking. They have Cooper Cup, Robert Woods, Tyler Higby looks great. They're Running back, uh, kid from Clemson, looks great. He's from Clemson, right? Or is that – Daryl Henderson or Malcolm Brown? Oh, I think there's a third. Yeah, they have a, they have a three-running back system. Um, but Daryl Henderson, I think, is the guy that's about to take over, which is interesting because he was the third guy on the depth chart. But with the injury to Cam Akers and the just lack of success, I guess, for Malcolm Brown, he's been thrust into that starting role. It was Cam Akers who I was thinking of. He went to Florida State. So, right conference, wrong team. But, yeah, they look great. And anyone who wants to give Sean McVay crap, I'm not here for it. I think Sean McVay is the elite coach. And until he really starts to lose, you can't say otherwise. He's had winning seasons past uh, uh, the entire time he's been there. So, credits yeah. due, credits due. But the he Eagles. wearing his mask. He'll be all good on my front. He did this past week. That's why they won so much. I – don't know what they're going to do. I am very concerned because the injuries are starting to pile up with uh, Jalen Rager. Their offensive line has been beat up. It, it looks like a mess. Maybe is this the season that the Eagles just start to rebuild? What do you think? That, that was actually something I wanted to, to talk about a little bit because we're going to get to the whole idea of the amount of injuries, especially from this past week. But the Eagles, especially the last year or two, have been this like 
injury prone team, unfortunately, you know, they went from winning a Super Bowl with this awesome deep roster to being so thin at so many positions. Um, right now, Philly is unfortunately looking to me, looking like a team that's not going to make the playoffs, but if they can get healthy, if that line can gain the experience it needs, to, they're still potentially the best football team in that division. I mean, the Cowboys are a regular season team. The Giants, I don't even know if I want to touch that right now. Nope. And then the Washington football team is very clearly in a rebuild. So if the Eagles can get healthy or gain some amount of consistency, especially on the offensive end, it's by no means out of the picture that they're going to uh, you know, be playing later on in the year in the playoffs. And that's where they do really well, typically, especially if, you know, they get to play the Bears. But right now, we're, we're just going to have to see. They, they just need to focus on getting healthy and working together as a cohesive unit. My concern is I think Doug Peterson is the right coach. To anyone listening who's an Eagles fan, that is probably a controversial opinion. I think he's a very good coach. I, dare I say elite coach. People – People really want to hound him for any errors or mistakes or play calling, et cetera. I really would be disappointed if the Eagles let him go unless they were like one in 15 type. Like they'd have to do awful because in his four years, he's been there. They went seven and nine the first year. The next year they won a Super Bowl. The following year they beat the bears and went to the division around. And last year they lost in the wild card after Carson Wentz got injured. That's a pretty good track record. I thought they won the Super Bowl his first year. No, second. The first okay. year was uh, just Carson Wentz's rookie year, and it was like kind of a growing period. Yeah, rebuilding from the old Chip Kelly era. Yeah, that was a mess, but we're going to move on because we're not opening that can of worms. Yeah, no, that's a whole different day's worth of discussion. Uh, moving down the list of games, the big games, Seahawks and Patriots, one of the most competitive games of the first week, a high-profile quarterback matchup between Russell Wilson and Cam Newton that did not disappoint. And I want to start this with uh, my number two fantasy pick this past year, Russell, West, uh, Russell, excuse me, Russell Wilson, who has nine touchdown passes in the first two weeks of the season and is already being considered and talked about as an early season MVP candidate. We talked about how good this Seahawks team can be, how much of that success relies on Russell Wilson playing at an MVP type level. Most of the Seahawks success over the past how many years he's been there can be attributed to how elite Russell Wilson is. No matter how good or how bad the team is, Russell Wilson will always find ways to make plays and score when he needs to. I said it last week, Russell Wilson is one of the best quarterbacks in the league, and this past week proved it even further. Fans got nine touchdowns and 11 total incompletions. That is a phenomenal stat line. He looks great. He's going to get an MVP vote this year. I can guarantee that. I'd be very, very disappointed if he didn't. But I think the Seahawks just need to kind of continue this momentum and keep rolling. Like you said with the Rams, they're in a very tough division. It's not a gimme for the NFC West. They need to keep playing it well, but they're doing everything in their power as of now. Yeah, I mean, the defense isn't quite what we're used to seeing out of a Seattle defense, but that offense, especially led by Russell Wilson, has been horrifying. I would not want to have to play that football team right now. I would trade so many people for the Seahawks defense. <laughs> so many things for it, Robbie. Despite them not being the legion of boom, they still look great. They're still pretty scary defense. Yeah, no, I mean, they can, they can get it done. They're, they got the vets, you know, that's still been there. Some new young guys, they're, they're looking fine. And if their defense can, you know, really sharpen the, the points, 
that is going to be the scariest team in that already horrifying division. Um, so we'll see how that goes on the other end of it. Uh, Cam Newton, man, this is going to be a talked about story all year. Cam Newton is getting paid like $2 million to play football this year. Cam Newton's a former MVP candidate. He played in the Super Bowl, although I don't think he scored a touchdown in that Super Bowl. But this man is a, is a veteran quarterback who everybody five years ago was talking about as one of the best. And all of a sudden, every backup quarterback and their mother is getting paid more money than him. Um, does that, I don't know if I want to say disrespect, but does that idea kind of fuel the excellent play we've seen out of him so far? Yeah, and I think the idea of the Panthers not wanting him coupled that with the amount of days he had to wait before the Patriots signed him or any team wanted to sign him. Like you, for any athlete, that's absolute fire and fuel to go out there and just kick ass. I, Camden has thus far proved that he is the guy that we thought he was like in the 2015 season. Like he is still capable of scoring. He is still capable of winning. He lost to a very tough Seahawks team. I was surprised that the Patriots played so well and credit to I don't know if I can give credit to Cam just yet. Like, he played well, but I really am starting to believe that the system of coaches they have in place in New England really is kind of a plug-and-play system where you can just put anyone you want, and they're going to do well. Cam's the right guy, but they really tailored their offense to him. But he is by far the best value quarterback you can get right now, especially being paid $2 million and putting up the stat line he's putting up. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, to, to get that high caliber of a quarterback for the, the minimal contract they have him on must feel real good. If you're Bill Belichick, who, as you stated, already one of the best system coaches in all of football and that defense still top five, maybe even top three in the league. Um, are the Patriots still the favorite to come out of that division, even without Tom Brady? No, I still think the bills are the favorite, but after these past two weeks, I really think the Patriots can now make a run at the wild card or one of the two or I guess one of the three wild card spots now. Yeah, no, that'll, that's going to be a really interesting thing to see uh, develop as we get closer and closer to playoff time. Um, but the Patriots obviously still putting themselves in a very good position to win. And we're going to keep track on the success Cam Newton has with this team moving forward. Uh, speaking of success, the Chiefs last year's Super Bowl champions in a dogfight this past week with rookie quarterback Justin Herbert getting a last-second start for the Chargers and played exceptionally well, became the first rookie quarterback in the history of the NFL to both pass for and rush for a touchdown in the first half of their NFL debut. The Chargers did end up falling short in overtime, but um, you got to like the play you saw out of the young guy. Uh, To you, what was like the biggest takeaway for, for Herbert for that game? This game has confirmed my suspicion that the Chargers were always a good team, but Phillip Rivers is Phillip Rivers. The Chargers look great, and Justin Herbert, especially in his first game, looked absolutely incredible. Being told you're going to play the defending Super Bowl champion very, very last minute, it, that's no easy feat. And he was up to the task, and he did a very, very great job. He lost. He had one pretty bad mistake with the interception toward the end of the third quarter. Other than that, though, I can't fault him. The future looks bright in Los Angeles. I feel bad for Tyrod Taylor. I mean, the guy has a punctured lung. But Justin Herbert, I think Justin Herbert's going to take the spot and he's going to run with it. And I think the Chargers are going to have reasonable success in the future. 
Yeah, I mean, I think when you draft a quarterback as high as, you know, they drafted Herbert, the point of having someone like Tyrod Taylor is to just have them start until the rookie's ready. Obviously, the unfortunate circumstance that happened with Tyrod Taylor thrust him into that starting lineup, but Herbert came in acting that he was as ready as ever and played as good of a game as you can against the Super Bowl, uh, defending Super Bowl champions. Um, you know, I hope Tyrod Taylor is okay and is able to continue playing football. That's a you know, terrible mistake that's completely on the medical staff there. Hopefully all that gets you know, cleared, and I don't want to throw blame where I don't know where it belongs, but that, that's a tough one to get through. Uh, the Chiefs, though, the offense didn't look great especially in that first half. Uh, they had to rely on Harrison Bucker to make a 58-yard field goal to win the game. As someone watching the Chiefs, you know, seeing this team compared to last year's team, what's the biggest difference so far? And why did a team like the Chargers stay that closely in that game? I think the Chargers' defense is better than we give them credit for. They looked sneaky good, and uh, Joey Bosa had a field day getting to Patrick Mahomes. I think the Chiefs are a very fast-paced offense, so with the fact they couldn't get going early on, that sort of started to snowball a bit. And then finally, once they were able to score and they had the Herbert interception, they were able to kind of will themselves into tying the game. But with them, they got to start fast. It was the same thing like the Super Bowl, where they looked terrible up until the fourth, and then once they started to get the ball rolling, they looked unstoppable. Yeah, they, I mean, there's a lot to be said about a team that can just turn it on in the fourth quarter. Obviously, you'd like to see them play all four quarters with, uh, with that much intensity, but, you know, they won the game. That's the important part. 2-0 Kansas City Chiefs. Speaking of 2-0, the Las Vegas Raiders are one of the, I think it's 10 or 11 teams still undefeated in this season. They beat the Saints on Monday Night Football, and you were someone who saw this outcome someone who struggled making predictions on our last episode, two episodes ago, but now calling a big one. How, how good does that feel? I'm just going to say it now feels great. I'm probably two for 25 on predictions, but that one felt good. Yeah, it was a very good game. Uh, maybe not for a Saints fan, just because the Saints kind of sucked. <laughs> they did not look good against the Raiders defense and the Raiders offense just kind of ran them over. I was surprised that the Saints' offense didn't look as good as they were. Emmanuel Sanders did nothing that entire game, and it really felt like they were missing Michael Thomas. But uh, it feels good to have another prediction under my belts. Our average is probably at 4%, so we're, we're feeling ourselves now. Moving on up in the world. Oh, yeah. That's oh, right. Man. The, the Raiders really relied heavily on their two offensive superstars, Josh Jacobs and Darren Waller both of which who have yet to practice this week in preparation for their game on Sunday. Uh, it seems to just be some maintenance issues for them, but still something to, to track and be uh, maybe be concerned about. But like you mentioned with the Saints, really looked like they missed Michael Thomas. Um, Emmanuel Sanders, as good as he's been over his career, is 36 years old. He's, he's 33, up, I looked this 33, up. No, you're right, we looked this up. He's 33 years old, excuse me, but still getting up there for a receiver. Traquan Smith... Uh, as well as he played, is relatively young, doesn't have a whole lot of experience, and I believe the rest of the uh, the wide receivers they have are, are rookies or second-year guys. How badly will they miss Michael Thomas if these – okay, that, that, that might not be the way to phrase this question. How much of an impact will Michael Thomas have on their chance to make the playoffs when he comes back compared to someone like Emmanuel Sanders who just isn't doing anything right now? 
Well, I think Emmanuel Sanders in that offense is a great second option, but Michael Thomas has to be the guy. He had a NFL record-breaking amount of catches last year, and you can discredit him because he may not be as explosive as Julio or run routes as good as Hopkins, but there is something to be said for that level of production. Michael Thomas is a very important piece to that offense and is going to be necessary. Emmanuel Sanders can't have all that heat on him from opposing defenses. He needs Michael Thomas to kind of take that and play at his elite level, and then he can kind of step in and be that number two guy. Sure. Um, the Saints' defense looked pretty good, and other than, you know, giving up 34 points, but their oh, defense that is That is a hot take. I did not think they looked good. See, see to me, it was – there were parts that looked good. They, you know, Cam Jordan plays exceptional football, but when he's the only one that's even remotely putting pressure on the quarterback, exactly. They're going to score a lot more than a, than a Las Vegas Raiders team should. So I don't know. I the think Saints... my opinion though, was their line looked fine, but their secondary, which is typically at least from last year, a focal point of their defense did not look good. Janoris Jenkins was getting ripped apart by people. And Malcolm Jenkins also didn't look great. I, it's just there looked like a lot of issues in the secondary. They were getting called for a lot of penalties. I really wasn't impressed by what I thought that the Saints defense looked like. I mean, Darren Waller had 12 catches. That's just unacceptable, even for someone as good as him. So we'll see the adjustments they make. I still think on paper they have a very good defense, and hopefully we'll be able to bounce back for their sakes and then – Hopefully Drew Brees can kind of get it together and start doing the, the things offensively that he's known for doing. Um, but we'll, we'll keep pace, but shout out to the Raiders. 2-0 start that I don't know if many people uh, saw coming. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, baby. Just like all their wins. That's right. And so we had one week three game start. Last night the Miami Dolphins battled the Jacksonville Jaguars. All week we were all over the Gardner Minshew hype train. Unfortunately, he did not have a whole lot of help a couple injuries to some wide receivers, but the Dolphins ran away with this game pretty early. I know it looked kind of close at the end, but they were up 28 to seven for the better part of the second half. Um, <clears throat> obviously DJ Chark, the best wide receiver on the Jaguars wasn't healthy, but what would like, what, what more does the, does Gardner Minshew need in order for his receivers to start helping him legitimately win football games? He needs a line. He really had no time in the pocket last night. And there were a couple instances where he was throwing balls right to the chest for receivers and they were dropping them. I know he didn't have DJ Chark, but that is unacceptable from NFL pro wide receivers. I don't care if you're on the Jaguars. That's still unacceptable. Yeah, I know we gave a lot of, a lot of shit to the Jaguars week one after cutting Fournette, not signing uh, Devontae Freeman. But they won a football game and then they were in this one. Like they should have been in this one more than they were and just kind of fell apart, especially, you know, on the ground. The Dolphins have three kind of lackluster running backs that just ran all over this Jaguars defense, which a few years ago was one of the best defenses in football. Um, on the other side of things, the 0-2 Dolphins, I mean, Fitzmagic's alive and well. This dude can play football. He plays this, like, don't-care attitude, like, put it all out on the line. Like, most quarterbacks you'll see run for seven yards and then slide to the ground. Ryan Fitzpatrick dives for those other three yards. I mean, he is just here to win. And I'm all for it, even if, you know, Miami only, only wins four to six games like they normally do. Um, but with the Patriots looking not as strong as normal, is there a world where the Dolphins could make the playoffs this year? No. <laughs> Get out of here. No, please leave. 
the Dolphins will not make the playoffs this year, and I don't think they'll make it for a couple years. I Fitz, Fitz Magic, as you like to put it, it, that is his last game of the year where he'll be good. It's the end of September. Next week's October. He's only good in September. He's only a September quarterback. He played well last night, but the thing is, if you're a franchise quarterback, you cannot put your body in the line like that. Fitzpatrick does what he wants because, you know, he's getting old. He's going to probably retire soon. But if you saw Tua Tungvaloa doing that, you'd probably be ready to, like, pray to, like, the Virgin Mary, just ready to, like, please don't hurt our quarterback. And that's kind of the issue where he – a lot of that game, at least for rushing, was predicated on him – doing these things that not a lot of running backs would even want to do, taking hits, like sliding, going after the first down. I don't think the Dolphins should be given much credit. They won that game, power to them. But it was the Jaguars, and the Jaguars' defense sucks. The Dolphins have a lot of great pieces, but I don't, I'm concerned that once Tua steps in, I don't think he's going to stay healthy. I think he's too injury prone, and especially if the only way their offense can work is if you got QBs doing bootlegs and taking hits, there's no way he stays healthy longer than a year. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I think we're all kind of expecting Tua to take over at some point for the Dolphins this year. Um, it, it's going to be interesting to see how the playbook changes because I wouldn't expect them to run these like outside run routes for that they're running for Ryan Fitzpatrick for Tua, who was a quarterback who was injured when they drafted him, or at least, you know, injured before he was right before he was drafted that's scary especially for a young guy on a team that I don't remember the last time they've had a good offensive line so I am here for the beef though because I think there is a beef that's brewing so hear me out we all know Ryan Fitzpatrick is he's the starter for now but they want Tua to take over at some point that makes sense but Justin Herbert the pick after Tua has already started and is as now flourishing, you know, it'll be to be determined. But what if Herbert has continued success? And what if the Jet, or sorry, the Dolphins just keep kind of sucking? Do you think two would just want to get in there? Do you think that if the Dolphins refuse to play him this season because it's kind of a lost cause? Do you think two, like, or his par- what if his parents start to meddle? We got like a, a Manning situation. Like, I think there's a lot of really good beef that could come out of this. And I am oh, always yeah. here for beef. Oh, I'm I'm a big fan of that. Um, I'm I'm, intri- I'm really intrigued to see what happens with Tua this year. I think he'll play at some point, just based off who's ahead of him, the system, whatever. I think it would be best if he didn't play, but God knows Ryan Fitzpatrick's not a full season long quarterback. Um, but but between those two young guys, yeah, I mean they very easily could have been picked in each other's slots, and that's going to be something to to monitor going forward in their careers. Is like they were picked. Back, you know, back to back. That's not something you see all of the time. You're going to want to, especially when they both started as backups. And now one, as you said, has already entered into what should theoretically be the starting role for the rest of the season. If Tua can kind of have a counterpunch, does he have a counterpunch? Will the Dolphins let him have a counterpunch? We'll see. But those two young guys obviously show a lot of promise. I'm excited for it. As you said, I'm all for the beef. Mm-hmm. Um, I got one more question for you along that side of the game. This is something that was brought up in the very beginning of the game. Ryan Fitzpatrick's beard or Gardner Minshew's mustache? Well, the Minshew mustache is the obvious winner, but I texted you last night saying, I hope the Jags win because I'm a bit prepared. 
I, my plan was to shave my beard and just have my mustache and rock in a headband. I can't do that because the Jags lost. It wasn't even really close. I know they had a chance at the end. So I'm disappointed about that. I would look great. But, uh, hey, listen, I can grow a beard, but, like, there's something to be said about a handlebar mustache. That's some good stuff. I'll, I'll say this. Fitzpatrick's beard is glorious, but it is very unkempt. Uh, that, that mustache that Gardner has, that's a nice-looking mustache. Um, I know. You know, we, we heard my quote from last week about Gardner, that, that frat boy, my friend. <laughs> so, as I said earlier, there were a lot of injuries this past week in the NFL. A lot of big names. Uh, the ones I want to throw out, uh, Nick Bosa and Saquon Barkley, both out for the season with torn ACLs. Those are possibly the best players on each of their respective teams. Um, Cortland Sutton and Drew Locke, also both out for the year. I don't know if Drew Locke's confirmed out for the year, but Cortland Sutton is definitely out for the year, also tore an ACL. And Chris, er, yeah, Christian McCaffrey is going to miss four to six weeks with a high ankle sprain. These are marquee NFL players, and for the most part on you know, relatively high-powered offenses, or Bosa in the his sense defense. Who, who's the biggest name to go down here? Uh, in your opinion? Of all those players in a vacuum, I'd probably say Saquon. But on the basis of playoff teams, I would say Nick Bosa. Because I think the 49ers, of all those teams, are the best shot of making a run at the playoffs. I mean, they're NFC champs last year. Nick Bosa going down is a huge detriment to the 49ers defense. But Saquon is was really carrying the Giants offense. So losing him is a lot. I guess the one silver lining of losing Saquon is now you'd be able to beat him in the 400 meter. So props to you. That, that is true. I think I could indefinitely beat him on that one. That's great for yeah. me. On a torn ACL, I could beat an NFL running back. That, that is my, um, my, my one armed man. That is just, that's all for me. That's all I needed. Uh, but the Giants went right after signing a replacement for Saquon Barkley. We've been kind of tracking his free agency process uh, since the beginning of the year. Devontae Freeman has now signed a one-year deal with the Giants. Apparently was offered a little bit more money from some other teams, but felt that New York was the best chance for him to have success. And now he opens his first game of the season against that Nick Bosa-less 49ers offense, or defense. Uh, what are you expecting from Devontae Freeman in his first game of the season? I'd expect like 60 some yards rushing, like kind of average numbers. I'm sure they'll probably rush him like 15 times. But what if the turf actually is bad? What if Devonta Freeman gets hurt for the season? They're going to have such a bad investigation into it if he gets hurt or someone else of that marquee gets hurt. The 49ers have the short end of the stick playing in New York back-to-back weeks. I mean, granted, they're playing some of the worst teams in the league, the Giants and the Jets, but that turf sounds a little dangerous. Oh, yeah. I mean, the 49ers, I'm pretty sure there was a list of five or six players that actually got hurt. Jimmy Garoppolo's on that list also that we didn't mention. And they're uh, gonna be starting Mostert, back to, too. Yeah, Mostert as well, and I think Coleman also. They're starting uh, their third-string running back this week. I think it's JD, uh, not J.D. McKissick, uh, McCarron, Mc, Jarek McKinnon. That's the name I'm looking yes. for. Yes, okay. The, those are the three running backs. Yeah, those are the three, but I I'm, I'm believe McKinnon's going to be the starter this week as the other two are uh, both listed as doubtful. So that's going to be interesting. And then Nick Mullins, as I said, is going to be uh, starting this week in place of Jimmy G with my boy from Iowa, C.J. Beathard, as that third string. 
So DJ Bedhard was from Iowa. Yeah, yeah, he was. Dude, he sucks. <laughs> He's he terrible. He is Iowa's leading passer and touchdown scorer of all time, I believe, and that makes me feel not great. You but should feel empty inside if that's the case. I feel something inside, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but, so yeah, we'll keep that monitored, especially if there are another plethora of injuries because of that field. That would, as you said, be something to maybe look into. Um, but we'll see. So week three coming up on Sunday, we'll have you updated on all of it next week as the final scores come in. And now moving on into the MLB, we are, I believe, three to four games per team away from the playoffs. We are real close. So I'm going to give a standings update here. The Tampa Bay Rays have clinched their division. They are the, uh, more than likely going to be the number one seed in the AL and the Twins right behind them at two. The Athletics are the only other team to have clinched their division. They're locked in at three right now. We got the White Sox at four, the Indians at five. Unfortunately, the New York Yankees are in the playoffs. They're at the sixth seed right now. They are confirmed in. The Blue Jays, who have also just clinched their playoff spot yesterday, are the seven. And then the Astros, very minimal, under half percent chance that they don't make the playoffs. They, would, they need a win or an Angels loss to lock in that playoff spot. Um, who do you see out of the, the AL teams maybe coming out? I know it's an extended playoffs this year, so it's kind of harder to tell, but of these teams, is there any uh, one clear cut guy that you've, or team that you've seen maybe take a, take a step above everyone else? Mm. The Rays, I think are the surprise of the year, just from how good they are and how dominant they've been. I am interested to see how the Yankees do though. I think the Yankees will make a push, but like, to the degree of they may make the like the finals of the AL, like the ALCS. I don't know. It depends who they run into, but I really think just with the experience and the slugging they have, that they could really be a threat as long as they have everyone healthy. Oh, 100%. I mean, if the Yankees are in the playoffs, they're going to be a threat more than likely no matter what. The team I have had my eye on this entire time has been the Chicago White Sox. They are just this group of pretty much just a bunch of young dudes. You know, they made a lot of great trades over the, over the past few years to get some young guys, namely getting Aloy Jimenez for Jose Quintana off of the Cubs. And now Aloy is one of their better players. But they have a really good core of young talent that is just playing spectacular baseball right now. Um, I think they were the, the one or two seed last week when we had updated on the standings. And now they're, they're in at four but they're, they're playing far better baseball than I would have expected out of this White Sox team. So I wouldn't be surprised if these young guys just kind of stay hot and keep this trend of young guys being more and more wanting to be the guy when it comes up, you know, for clutch situations. They're the team I'm keeping my eye on. I am very excited about that Chicago team. And moving on to the other side, the Los Angeles Dodgers have clinched the best record in baseball. They are the number one seed locked in and the two seed in the NL Right behind them are the San Diego Padres in that same division. We've been talking a lot about Slam Diego this year. They got the MVP candidate in Tatis Jr. We're, we're going to be hearing a lot of them. They will actually be playing the Giants for the last series. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Uh, the three-seeded Braves, the four-seeded Chicago Cubs five, uh, are the only other teams confirmed in for the NL. Those top four are it that have clinched before the last three games. The Cardinals are the fifth seed. The red sixth, goddamn Miami Marlins are the seven seed. And so here's where the playoff race gets a little chippy. So the Giants right now hold the eight seed in the playoffs. They are given a 46.9% chance to make the playoffs. 
The Phillies, who are a half game behind them, are given a 50.8% chance to make the playoffs. The Philadelphia Phillies' final series is against the Tampa Bay Rays, the best team in the AL. However, the Giants' last series is against the Padres, and the Padres have a better record than the Rays. ESPN is giving the slight edge chance to the Phillies. Um, who do you think? And then and the Brewers are still in the mix as well, but between the Giants and the Phillies, namely, who do you A, who do you think is more likely to make the playoffs, and B, who do you think could potentially make more noise, especially more than likely going to be playing the Dodgers? I got, I got to take my bias. I was debating on saying, like, trying to give some reasonable argument. But, no, it's the Philadelphia Phillies. From a statistical perspective, they have – if they win two out of the three games against the Rays and the Marlins only win one in their next series, they will, I believe, usurp the Marlins and become the two seed in the NL East. They have to, I believe, do one game better than the Giants to become the, uh, sorry, I'm blanking, the NL wildcard winners or one of the two NL wildcard winners. So I'm going to put my faith in Philadelphia. They're playing a very tough Rays team, but the Rays have the one seed. Maybe they'll take it easy, and maybe the Phillies will really come back in their own. I think, though, the Phillies are the team that the Dodgers would not want to play just because if the Phillies are clicking, they're pretty scary. And if their pitching's on, oh, boy. I mean, offensively, the Phillies – have kind of started to click, I think. Like, Bryce Harper's hitting this this bomb dude is awesome. But, yeah, it, it's going to be the pitching that we talk about a lot for the Phillies. Is can, they, can they get it done, especially here down the stretch? Um, but I, I will say this. If the Phillies don't make the playoffs this year, I think they're going to come back next year, and Bryce Harper's going to be like, okay, I'm two years into this massive contract that I've signed, and I haven't made the playoffs and haven't really been an MVP candidate yet. I think he's going to come back with a little chip on his shoulder, and if the Phillies miss the playoffs this year, I would expect them to be a top four seed next year. And, you know, who knows how many teams will make the playoffs next year. But I think right now they're close. If we can get the pitching aids that we need and Bryce Harper can start playing like the Bryce Harper we signed, I think this Phillies team is going to be set up for a lot of success in the next few years to come. Yeah, the two big things this offseason, they need to give their catcher, JT Realmoto, an extension. Oh, yeah. He's playing very well. Please pay the man. But the other thing is kind of like what it was in 2008 when they acquired Brad Lidge, who's one of the best closers in baseball. They really need to get a closer, like a high-quality closer, and maybe beef up their pitching if they're able to. I, with a 60-game season, I don't think no matter how good or how bad they do, it's, like, it's sort of a wash just because how weird the season's been. So we will see. I hope nothing drastic changes, but at the same time, I'd like to see success this year, especially, but in the years to follow. I completely agree. Uh, you mentioned JT Real Muto. He's probably the best catcher in baseball right now. Resigning him has to be a top priority. But speaking of great catchers, yesterday, Yadier Molina hit career hit number 2000. Wanted to give him a little shout out. He might be one of, if not the best catcher in the history of the MLB. So I just wanted to give him a quick shout out. And the last thing I'm just going to mention for the MLB is this will now, with the Washington Nationals being eliminated from playoff contention, the 20th consecutive season where we will not have a repeat champion in the MLB. Just a fun little stat to throw at you there. We're going to move on in as we have championship hockey to talk about. We made our predictions last week, I believe, about who we thought were going to win each of these series. And right now you have a two to one game lead. 
Um, what are your thoughts on the three games played so far in the Stanley Cup? You're screwed. Lightning are going to win. They got Stamkos back. They're clicking. Beat them five to two. You're, it's over. It's over for the Stars. Stars can go home. Yeah, no, I was reading an article on ESPN this morning that was all about they gave up five goals. They're down 2-1. What can you do to counter uh, Nikita Kudarov, four points leading all, uh, all scores in the uh, excuse me, Stanley Cup so far? I, I know we've talked about this a lot, and I don't want to you know, beat a dead horse here, but I feel like the fatigue is going to really start factoring in for Dallas here. I mean, they had two, at least two really long series they had to get through, and Tampa Bay had kind of been just cruising through the playoffs for the most part. We'll see. You know, they're only down one game right now. Game four is tonight. So hopefully my Dallas Stars can come and pull this out. They were playing really, really well to get to this point. Again, fatigue, we'll see. Um, it's going to be a great series. It already has been a great series. But five goals in the Stanley Cup game is unacceptable. So that is definitely something on both the defense and the goaltender to try and coalesce and make sure it does not happen again. Because I will guarantee this, if they give up five more goals again, they're not winning the Stanley Cup. Nope. So, again, we will keep you updated as we get closer and closer to naming the Stanley Cup champion. And now, finally, we are going to move into the NBA as we are also getting close to naming an NBA Finals champion as two teams are now one game away from the NBA Finals. We're going to start with last night's game as the Lakers went up three games to one against the Denver Nuggets. So this is nothing new for the Denver Nuggets. They have been here before, twice now, in a row but they have never had LeBron James on the other end of things. I know we've discredited them before, but is there a legitimate chance that the Nuggets have to win this series? Uh, between them and the Celtics, they have the much more legitimate chance of coming back and t- making it, winning in seven games. But like you said, LeBron James the other side this time, that's never a good thing. And I hate to say it, but I think – the Nuggets' magic has run out. I think the Lakers will go to the finals. Or this is Michael Malone's really, like, intricate plan of just taking over the NBA and winning another series down through one. I'll put that it this will... way, though. If LeBron loses this series, like, the GOAT conversation can just get blown up. I, I think we'll have to redo our GOAT conversation if LeBron does lose this series. I don't think Jordan yeah. ever blew a 3-1 lead. So, but man, Denver has, I mean, they play their best basketball with their backs against the wall. I think that's pretty clear to this point. You know, that story I said, the, the other episode where Jamal Murray was packing his clothes and he was like, I don't want to pack my clothes. And then they won three straight games against the Utah Jazz. They have done it against teams they shouldn't have beat before. It is possible. They can play a very high level of basketball. But to me, in the last, I think it was three or four minutes of that game, something very important happened that is going to be the reason the Nuggets don't win, and that's LeBron James started guarding Jamal Murray. With, with like three or four and a half minutes left, Murray started cutting the lane, and LeBron just literally pushed Rondo out of the way. He said, I'm taking him. Um, it, it, he's mine for the rest of the game. People like to forget that in the two years before the Warriors got Kevin Durant, LeBron James guarded Steph Curry in the NBA Finals and 100% locked him down. I mean, Steph Curry had multiple games where he shot under 25% from the field, under 20% from three in those series. LeBron James is an elite defensive player. If LeBron James wants to shut somebody down, he shuts them down, and they're out of the question. They're not going to be contributing in any major ways. Jamal Murray has played sensational. Nikola Jokic, when he's out of foul trouble, is the best center in the NBA. But, oh, my God, there's just only so many ways you can even go at trying to beat LeBron. 
winning three in a row is really not on that list. But LeBron can't sustain that defense. Yeah, he's one of the best defenders when he's trying. But there's a reason why we don't give LeBron credit on defense because he only does it – he does it when he needs to, which power to him because he wins when he wants. But it's not sustainable for him. So if the Nuggets can rack up a lead and keep in the fourth, I don't know. I don't know if I'd see – if they have like five, six-point lead – I don't see a scenario where the Lakers could necessarily win in that case. Uh, I will say this, though. Game two. Um, but that game was like a, a possession rather than a, like two or three possessions. Sure, sure. There's definitely something to be said about, you know, a multiple possession game late in the game. Um, but I was just thinking on the sense of the Denver Nuggets seemed in control of that game, especially for a good part of that fourth quarter. And then you see Anthony Davis hit that shot. I think it was P.J. Georgia just kind of spiked the ball against the backboard after it happened. Like, like, what can you do? I mean, this Lakers team at the end of the day is like their star power is just better. They have the best star power left in the playoffs. I, I would honestly think it'd be amazing to see the Denver Nuggets come back. I think it's just, just as a basketball fan, as a fan of LeBron, I want to see him win. But, man, Denver plays special basketball down 3-1 in the playoffs. So I'm excited. I do think they will win one more game. But three is tough. And so, as, as I said, another, the other series as well, three games to one. I am going to try so hard to stay well in talking about this, but the Miami Heat are one game away from going back to the NBA Finals. Just six years ago, they lost LeBron James, and everybody said that the Heat were done, and now just, just six short years later, and we are one game away from the Finals. As someone who isn't a Heat fan, what is the – most impressive thing you've seen from the Heat so far during this playoff run? You make it sound like six years in a long time, Robbie. I am impressed with, despite the fact that a lot of their core is very young, they have not shied away from the pressure and have still shot at very high percentages and very high quality. Now, you could maybe make a case of if they weren't in the bubble, would they be doing this with home fans, away fans, etc.? I don't know. It's irrelevant because we're talking about the bubble. I am impressed, though. The Heat, I think, at the end of the trade deadline made some very good moves with bringing in Jay Crowder, Andre Godala, to have a very good complement to this young core, have some veteran experience, and have some guys who can really help out, especially down the stretch in the fourth. I've been very impressed with how they've been able to finish games. Just even when the Celtics are down by like seven points, they always find ways to make threes and make the game very interesting when it really shouldn't be. Like Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum just hit threes nonstop, especially under a minute left. So props to them for still continuing to win and for not faltering. And even when they make some like, you know, game four, Jimmy Butler got a pass from Tyler Harrow and he turned the ball over because he caught it with one hand. And, you know, that happens but it didn't really affect them. Like they still were able to win and they're still able to be smart about it. Sixers, for example, would probably falter and that'd be the game. Even if they're up by like 20. So power yeah, to them. They're mentally strong and durable. Grant to the heat. I've been thinking a lot about, I don't want to go two balls to the wall with how aggressively for this heat team I am, but I've been thinking a lot about the statement that I wanted to make about this heat team. And here it is. Um, Defensively, I think they're the best team left in the playoffs. And I think it's pretty hard to make an argument against that. You know, they might not have the best defensive player left, 
But as a whole team, they play the best defense, especially with the way they can switch in and out of that zone. But offensively is, I think, the part of the side of the ball where they are the most lethal, at least when they don't realize. Because the Miami Heat have something really uncompensatable for a defense, and that's something called an effort-based offense. The Miami Heat, their offensive scheme has not changed since acquiring Jimmy Butler. Last year, the Heat were pretty much more or less the same roster, but instead of Jimmy Butler as Justice Winslow. Justice Winslow is like this perfect superstar fill-in piece. He's like the body of an NBA superstar without any of the actual skill. He can do some things. He can do some great things, but he doesn't do what Jimmy Butler does, and nobody's going to argue that. But Jimmy Butler is not a 30-point-per-game scorer. He's not our go-to scorer in the clutch. He is our go-to facilitator. He is the guy that we are asking to make the play, not make the shot necessarily. What I mean by an effort-based offense is that if every, all five players on the Heat's team are trying their 100% absolute best effort, their shots are going to go in. The tough, crazy shots that we are so impressed by seeing them hit are normal shots within their offense that they're trying to take. They're just trying harder to make them than anyone else shooting that shot. It's one of the most impressive things I've seen, especially when they don't have a true, true superstar. I think Jimmy's really, really close to being a true superstar, but I don't know if I'd, I'd call him one of the top of the top. Um, but man, this, this core, I mean, Jimmy, Bam, Duncan, Hero, Gorin, they play such tough, aggressive basketball. And then, like you said, you make those trades for Iguodala and, and Jay Crowder and fuck you, Solomon Hill. But for those two guys, great defensive players, great leaders, and Iggy maybe about to make his seventh straight finals appearance. <laughs> Who knows? But this Heat team, they, they try so hard. Their effort level is over 100%. I am beyond impressed, even as a relatively biased Heat fan. I'm just really proud about the success that this Heat team has had this playoff run. They've only lost two games. You should be. I've, you have no reason not to be proud. On the other side of things, though, we talked a lot about Boston with no real cohesive offense, just kind of a lot of, you know, individual play, isolation ball. What do they have to change in order to make a potential 3-1 comeback? Well, I think a starting point, even though Jason Tatum scored like 30 points, he had zero points in the first half. He didn't play well. The one thing you can never count out is Jason Tatum, though, if he has a bad game or has a bad half, the announcers will always pick it up. And then, like, I swear it's like clockwork where the next quarter or next game, he'll put up 30 and just look like a superstar. Don't ever count on Jason Tatum. I think Marcus Smart kind of needs to do more, and I'm not saying he hasn't done much, but he's the glue that holds the team together, and he really needs to kind of either get more rebounds, get more points, just to help them win. I'm not saying he's underperforming, but he needs that. And Gordon Hayward, having him back is great, but he needs to score more. They need to have a little more depth and give the Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Kemba, Marcus Smart, a little more time to rest. It's a long game, 48 minutes, especially for guys who are playing every other day. Yeah, I mean, to your, to your Marcus Smart point, I want to say I think he does need to do more. I think he needs to shoot a little less, but I think he needs to do a little more. I agree. And the depth was the biggest issue for this, this Boston team, pretty much all playoffs. So we'll see. Obviously, no 3-1 lead is safe in, in the bubble. Uh, but I'm, I'm rooting and praying for my Miami Heat, Jimmy Butler. You know, he makes my dreams come true. So we will, we will keep you all posted as the NBA Finals are just potentially one game away on each side. A team that thought they'd be in this position, you know, one game away from the Finals, that was 
uh, you know, up three games to one against the Never Nuggets and no longer in the NBA bubble, the Clippers. We talked about if they should blow it up last week. And then a story came out where, you know, Paul George tried to inspire them to, to come back next year. And, and they, he was met with bewilderment, you know, rolling eyes. A lot of the role players saying that they're as good as Paul George, uh, maybe at least as good as Pandemic P. You, you, you last week said that the Clippers should not blow it up. You, you think that they should, you know, hold firm to this core and try again next year. Do you still believe that? Yes. Why? Because even with Paul George playing at a quote-unquote abysmal level, they're still a great team. So all Paul George has to do is not suck in the playoffs and they'll be okay. If I were to give a speech to you about like the struggles of, I don't know, the struggles of writing, you would not care what I have to say because I'm not a writer. It's the same. I mean, that analogy is kind of loose, but it's the same with uh, the Clippers. Paul George being like, yeah, we'll be back next year. We're going to be good. But he was sort of the source of the problems for the Clippers and, quite frankly, why they blew a 3-1 lead to the Nuggets. He has no real grounds to speak, to be honest. Now, if Lou Will's rolling his eyes, Lou Will has no reason to talk when you're shooting 7% from three as well. Just saying. Give the Clippers time. I think they'll mesh. As long as they keep a large chunk of their core, I still think they're going to be a threat, and I really think they're going to win the Western Conference in the next two years. Yeah, I mean, that roster has just so – I mean, we talked about how deep they were episode after episode. Um, I, I, you know, I think this 3-1 to one blown lead is maybe getting a little blown out of proportion. They, they, they messed up, but their core is still great. I do think they're going to lose Montrez Harrell, his – deals up and I've already heard about a lot of teams inquiring about him, mainly the Dallas Mavericks, which I think could be real fun. But other than that, seems like most of the core, at least right now, a lot of them are under contract. Some guys are, you know, going to have to restructure deals, but we'll see. I, I think it's very plausible that they come back with pretty much the same core and can have just as much, if not more success, but the Clippers still searching for that very first Western conference finals berth. Got to wait a whole nother year, if not more, but We'll see. Who knows what they do? Who knows what Doc has up his sleeve? And on that idea of coaches, some coaching news. Number one, Billy Donovan, the co-coach of the year for the Oklahoma City Thunder, who was not re-signed, has now signed with the Chicago Bulls. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, seeing that they're a team, a young team with now hiring a developmental style coach? Well, I think Billy Donovan has the experience that as long as the Bulls are developing and they seem with their core, as long as their core develops, I think they can maybe make it to the playoffs in a few years. I think it's a good hire. I think he's a good coach and why not give it a try? Levine's really coming to his own. I think Markadon has potential. Kobe White, Thomas Sadoransky, who's the best backup point guard in the league, according to my friend, things like that. They really have a good core. I think the reason he didn't stay with the Thunder was because Thunder, I don't think, want to make a playoff run. I think they really want to rebuild. And I think the Bulls are sort of – they're past the rebuild stage. They're more in the, okay, we have the players. Let's start to develop them. Yeah, no, I, I agree. They also, though, have the fourth overall pick, and I'm sure Billy Donovan loves coming in to have a nice top pick right as he gets in there. So we'll, we'll see how the Bulls do. You know, I, I thought they could have made – you know, their roster was talented enough to be in the playoff mix this year. Wasn't correct about that one, but, you know, we'll see. Zach Levine's a great basketball player. Uh, Carter Jr. and Markkinen struggle, but they are good at 
the things they're, you know, marking at scoring Carter at rebounding and defense. They're good at some things. They belong in the NBA, but we'll see if they maintain those prominent roles, especially now with the new coach. And so there's also been, man, there's been a lot of speculation about who the Sixers are going to hire now that Brett Brown's out. Um, and the big story that was developing these past few days was that Mike D'Antoni seems to be one of the top two leading candidates, him and Ty Lue. And there's a, and a potential idea that if D'Antoni goes to Philly in a year or two when his contract's up or even before that with the trade, James Harden could make his way over to the 76ers. First, I want to talk about feasibility of that. And then I want to talk about how successful they could be. But so if you were to trade for Harden and Beter Simmons has to go, and I don't think Sixers fan wants to do Sixers fans want to do that. Do you think just hiring Danny is worth it? If the only real benefit from it is you might get James Harden. I would hire D'Antoni kind of based off his track record alone, rather than the promise of bringing James Harden to the Sixers. He's done a lot with innovating offenses, the sun seven second offense, the Rockets. He has a lot of unique ideas, and I really think that could be very beneficial to the Sixers. Uh, James Harden, that idea I don't like because James Harden is starting to get kind of old. He's still playing at a high level, don't get me wrong, but in a year or two, you're going to be looking at a 32-year-old, 31-year-old who is going to be making 40-plus million dollars and then is looking for probably another super max or near max extension, that to me gives me anxiety. I really don't want to see them drop another $200 million on a guy who's sort of at the precipice of his prime. That concerns me. I have heard rumors that they want to get Buddy Heald from the Kings. That I like a lot more because Buddy Heald's younger, isn't as ball dominant, and shoots at a very high level. Yeah, well, first off with Buddy Heald, I agree. I think that'd be an awesome acquisition for the Sixers. You know, oh, you yeah, guys, it's a no-brainer. You guys severely missed J.J. Redick's shooting ability this past season. And I think someone like Buddy Heald, who isn't quite J.J. Redick, but, I mean, the guy can shoot the lights out. He just he, He's a sniper. I think that'd be a great fit. With Harden, first of all, I would 100% not give up either Simmons or Embiid for him. I mean, they may not be better basketball players. There's air quotes around that. But – I mean, they're, they're younger. They have the potential. I mean, I think Ben Simmons has the potential to be a top three player in the NBA at some point in his career. I wouldn't trade them. But if they're able to work out a situation where Harden comes in for a little less money and you then are able to maintain both Embiid and Simmons, those are two players that a slightly older James Harden, I think, could mesh well with because what the Sixers lack is a go-to perimeter scorer. That is all James Harden is. He is a go-to perimeter scorer and, you know, guy who gets to the line. But you throw him in with two of the most defensively efficient players in the NBA, that is a horrifying Sixers team to contemplate. I just don't think that if they get hard, there's no way they keep Embiid. Yeah, I mean, that, the, the issue becomes money. Um, you know, you guys spent a lot on Harris and Horford I would expect Horford to be gone this offseason, but regardless, there's a lot of money tied up into very few players. There will be a lot of tax fraud committed. <laughs> I'm just putting it that way. People are just oh. going to disappear, and $190 million are going to come off the books magically. Breaking news, Al Horford is gone. He was snapped Al out Horford of Al Horford never existed. 
He was just and us, if you're listening, grab your stones, cut off half the Philadelphia 76ers roster, and we'll be good to go. Yep. Uh, any more coaching changes as we come through? We'll, you know, we'll come through and talk about, bring up you know, how we think they're going to succeed with their new teams. But that's all we got for the news portion of this. And now we have a debate we wanted to do last week. Ran a little short on time. We're going to get to now uh, today. Our kitchen hot take of the day. Hot debate. Who is the biggest bust in the history of the NFL? There, there's a lot of names you could put on this list. There's a lot of, a lot of bad players in the NFL. I, I want to start here because I think in my research that I was doing, it seemed like if there was a consensus biggest bust of all time, it is the player I picked, Jamarcus Russell. Um, so I, I just want to rattle off some of, the, some of the stats here. So Jamarcus Russell, in his time at LSU, went 21-4. and four. He was the Sugar Bowl MVP in 2007. He was a number one overall pick by the Oakland Raiders. Three things that you very rarely see and then associate with lack of success. What happened next was he held out signing his contract for as long as he possibly could. Uh, this number one overall draft pick, you know, set to be the Raiders' future, get, uh, waited until he signed a $61 million contract with just over half of it being guaranteed. He then went on to have a 7-18 and 18 career as a starter over three seasons. He threw 18 touchdowns during that time, in which he also committed 38 to- turnovers, 23 of which were interceptions. The man sucked. Like, there was no way around it. He was this you know, $60 million athlete that was playing like a five cent athlete. Like he, he was, he was terrible. And because of how bad he was for years and years, the Oakland Raiders would not let a player wear the number two. They were just traumatized by it until uh, Marquette King finally convinced them to let him wear it. And in the very first game he wore number two, he got hurt. The only other player in Oakland Raiders history to wear the number two is Terrell Pryor. And I will tell you now that Terrell Pryor is not in the NFL anymore or at least he's not on an actual active roster. Um, and the final stat I want to throw out, Jamarcus Russell in 2009 had a 50 passer rating, which is the lowest since the stat was, uh, began being recorded. The lowest. With that, is there a worse player or a bigger bust in the history of the NFL? Jamarcus Russell's up there, but I think he's second to my player. You can't talk about busts without talking about Ryan Leaf. And he didn't go first. He was the second pick to Peyton Manning in the 1998 NFL draft. But people forget that when Peyton Manning was picked, there was a lot of controversy about it because scouts thought that Ryan Leaf should have been the number one overall pick and he will have the most or the biggest take all your skills, put him in the NFL. He's going to transfer nice and well. Everyone thought Ryan Leaf was the prototype. He's the guy that you should pick. And the Chargers, they're like, yeah, I think Ryan Leaf's going to be our future, and he's going to be better than Peyton Manning. Very optimistic. Now, he was the quarterback for the Chargers from 1998 to 2000, so three years. And, well, what did he do exactly? He had 317 pass completions. Okay, you know, happens. I'm sure the people with less completions. I have zero all time. But he threw 655 pass attempts. For anyone who's not doing math in their head, that's a completion percentage of 48.4%. That is abysmal. <laughs> Anything below 50 is abysmal. And 50 is like kind of serviceable, but not really. 
Now, on top of that, okay, you know, maybe he just – his receiver sucked. But he had a touchdown-interception ratio of 14 to 36. I don't know how many fumbles he had going off of that, but 14 to 36, not good at all. A one-to-one ratio is already pretty bad. That's nearly triple. He had 300 – sorry, 3,666 passing yards – and you said Jamarcus Russell, the lowest pass, passer rating of all time. Well, good news, Ryan Leaf tied him with a 50. <laughs> so we're looking pretty bad. I think another thing, too, to add on to that, Ryan Leaf also had that infamous blow up in the locker room after a reporter asked him questions, and that didn't do him any good. He was out of the league basically within after three years. Didn't do much. He actually went to jail. His life is back on track now, which is great to hear. I'd be happy in that case. But, oof. Especially for people backing up this guy and saying, Colts, you should have taken him with number one overall pick. And you got Peyton Manning, who's one of the best quarterbacks of all time, versus Ryan Leaf, who is, in my opinion, the worst. A big trade-off in one and two, and there really shouldn't have been one. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that, that's a cool thing that you brought back up that, like, people People brought up controversy about not drafting this guy and drafting Peyton Manning. That's crazy. Peyton Manning is someone I argued is the best quarterback ever. The funny thing is, I want to say I heard a report that one of the Colts scouts or someone from the Colts organization wrote a letter to the owner saying, you have to pick Ryan Leaf number one overall. He is the guy and you will regret it for years to come if you don't. So that was a, cold take to say the least but I hope he doesn't have a job anymore I would doubt it <laughs> um so so my counter to that for Russell is I mean I mean so I'm not going to argue anything like pick one versus pick two if you're a top two pick in the NFL and you have a bad career that's all on you Jamarcus Russell so I remember being little and you know being a kid collecting sports cards for the very first time one of, one of the like first cards I got in one of these first football packs that I opened was Jamarcus Russell rookie card and I go up to one of my brothers and I, I say, who is this? Cause I, you know, I didn't know any Raiders. I was a Steelers and Eagles fan. I didn't really know anybody else. And he goes, Oh, this was the number one pick in the draft. This dude's going to be so good. I don't think I heard Jamarcus Russell's name ever again until his career was over. I understand that my brothers and I are not necessarily experts on, on the NFL and how everything's going to turn out for players careers. But when you're, a top pick like that you're you're this guy that is like just like you're gonna turn this franchise around you're gonna be our guy we're gonna pay you 60 million dollars we're gonna we're gonna let you dictate how much we pay you that's how good we think you're gonna be I think a lot of this does fall on the fact that the Raiders clearly didn't do all the research they should have but I mean if you're gonna be a guy that holds out for that amount of money and then performs the way you did like man that you just you fucked over a franchise as bad as you could have to me, that's pretty much what the definition of a bust is. I, but going off of that, I really think that Ryan Leaf kind of screwed over the Chargers for that reason. I mean, they, they didn't mortgage anything. And I don't like there was no massive cap implications, but this guy was supposed to be a stud. He turned into nothing. He ended up getting Drew Brees, who turns into a stud. But he wants to leave, and then you get Phil Rivers, who ended up mortgaging even more of your future. The Raiders have really, in the new era after Rich Gannon, 
really have had no real success with quarterbacks. You could argue uh, Derek Carr is probably the closest thing. And even him, like, you could – he's serviceable, maybe good at best. Don't hate so, on my boy, Matt Schaub. He was great on the Texans, <laughs> but not great on the Raiders. Nope. That's to me, Jamarcus Russell can be known for screwing over rookies for money, just with all the roles that came out after him. He had a very integral part of Stephen A. Smith's greatest rant of all time. Jamarcus Russell, you fat job of the hut slot. <laughs> One of the best rants of all time. Please listen to it if you never heard it. And also some of the best stories where they gave him a blank tape and they asked him, so what did you think of the plays and ideas we want to have? And he goes, I love them. And that's how they knew he was, wasn't watching any tapes because they just didn't believe all the lies he was telling. That's for, bad. That is bad. But for Ryan Leaf, just from all the people going like, the Colts, you're making a mistake. You've made a grave error. You guys are doomed. And for the Chargers to hype up this guy as their next real winner and for him to have the performance he had, maybe it wasn't like lasting implications in the salary cap like Russell did, but there is something to be said where people are like, you are making a mistake picking him, picking Peyton Manning instead of Ryan Leaf. That kind of praise especially the way it came true is bad and i think that is why he's the biggest bust of all time no i mean it's a fair argument you're making i i looked up a stat because i was curious so i that that 50 passer rating that both of our quarterbacks so so gratefully got there is one quarterback that has a lower career passer rating than any of that and nathan peterman a 32.5 career passer rating also a raiders quarterback so so maybe Maybe this is just a system issue with the Oakland Raiders. Who knows? Um, any final thoughts you want to throw out to this argument? Uh, I pretty much threw out anything I can for Jamarcus Russell. He didn't give me a whole lot to work with here. No, and I think they're both busts. I kind of want to see what the fans have to say. So let us know. I think it'll be very interesting. I want to hear your thoughts. And uh, please watch the video of Stephen A. Smith if you have never watched it. It is 100%. very funny. Stephen A. Smith has some good rants. He has some annoying rants. But this one, guys, this is – you got to listen. This is like Jimmy V's speech you got to listen to. I, don't, I wouldn't put it in that category, <laughs> but close enough. It's, it, you need to watch it. it. It's good stuff. So with that, we're going to exit the kitchen and move on into our superlatives portion of the day. Got some fun ones. We're going to bring back an old award. Uh, we're going to start out here with the MVP of the week, as I like to do. Alex, who was your MVP for this week? I have co-MVPs. Russell Wilson, I talked about him last week. We talked about him plenty, about him being a very well-deserving front-runner of the NFL MVP. Time will tell, but laughter last week playing against the Patriots, who looked better than I thought. He looks phenomenal. He deserves it. But Kyler Murray, his past two weeks, people were saying, watch out. He's going to have a phenomenal year after winning the Offensive Rookie of the Year. And he looks dangerous. He is a dual threat quarterback. Him with Hopkins is a scary combination. I know he played the Washington football team last week, but he beat them up. And if he can beat them up, he's going to destroy the Eagles, which also concerns me. But we'll move on. So those are my co-MVPs, Russell Wilson, Kyler Murray. 
I'm really glad you brought up those two names because it, it reminded me of a conversation I had with a buddy last year where uh, we were talking about Kyler Murray being the number one pick and he didn't like Kyler Murray as a number one pick, especially as a quarterback because he was a little undersized. Sure. And my exact comment was, have you ever heard of Russell Wilson? Those two guys are what, under six feet tall and probably <laughs> for, for lack of a better stat, the top two scoring fantasy quarterbacks this year? They're probably going to be. I mean, man, like they, they can run, they can pass, they get their offenses, lead them to touch uh, passing touchdowns more often than not. I mean, they're just, they're spectacular quarterbacks on, at least as of right now, spectacular football teams, really good picks on, on your end. My MVP, I, I know I try and stay unbiased, but I don't think I actually do. Tyler Hero is my MVP. Tyler Hero is my superhero. I'm shocked, truly. <laughs> Uh, everybody's probably been hearing about Tyler Hero scoring 37 points in game four of the finals. I don't necessarily want to talk about that. I do want to put out the stat that the only rookie to score more points in the NBA playoff game was Magic Johnson scored 42 in a finals game. What much more impressive, not trying to take away from that. But what I want to say about Tyler Hero is the attitude that he has brought. You, I think mentioned this when we were talking about the heat earlier, that the heat's young guys have come in with a, with, with, they're not shocked. They're not, they're ready for this. They're whelmed. They're, they're trot. They're ready to do battle as if they have been here before, as if they were NBA veterans. And Tyler Hero has been the epitome of that. He has scored double-digit points in every goal playoff game. That is a direct cor- correlation as to why the Heat have only lost two games. When you have a player coming off of the bench, scoring double digits every night, you are already putting two feet in the door for success. I love Tyler Hero. The man is a bucket. Baby goat is what we call him uh, in the South Bay area. I love that nickname. I love Tyler Hero. Jimmy Butler showed up to practice with a high school Tyler Hero jersey on yesterday. Big fan. I expect big things from Tyler Hero in the future because of this. But as of right now, that man has played some sensational bubble basketball. So my MVP of the week is Tyler Hero. Lock and bucket. Next award, we're going to go with the most disappointing player or team of the week. So I had a different name written down initially, but I ch- actually changed it as we were talking about our week one uh, or week two NFL recap. I picked the Jacksonville Jaguars as a whole. Originally, I just had Gardner Minshew, but you brought up some points that made me change my mind. Um, Gardner Minshew was not fully to blame for that. He definitely didn't play his best game of football, but he's not fully to blame for that. But the Jacksonville Jaguars, as gross as they look on paper, are a better football team than they look on paper. The Vincent running back came out of nowhere and has actually played very good football. They have some decent wide receivers. I just found out Tyler Eifert is their starting tight end. He's not the best anymore, but he's a, you know, a veteran tight end. But they just don't play well. They don't, their offense is kind of lackluster. Their defense is nowhere near what it was in 2016. They just, I mean, they, they came out and got dogged by the Miami Dolphins. Like, if you do that, you are just disappointing. So, to me, the Jaguars as a whole just were very lackluster on Thursday night. My most disappointing is the E-A-G-L-E-S Eagles. They, you can tell I'm disappointed. I'm heartbroken. They have a chance to make up for it. Hopefully next week they're my return of the Kings selection. But thus far they have not looked good. There is not much good that has come out of the games they have played. I am kind of concerned, and they look like a third-rate team in the NFL when they should be at least a second-rate, if not a first. So I'm disappointed. We'll look toward the future. 
Yeah, I mean, it's never fun to see your team struggle. Hopefully the Eagles can turn it around for all of Philly sports sakes. I don't know which is worse, when the Eagles are doing well or when the Eagles are doing poorly, because regardless, Philly fans are very emotional about it. So That's right. Don't forget it. <laughs> Next award, uh, you said it, so we'll just go right to it, the Return of the King. Um, who is your Return of the King for this week? I got to say Cam Newton, because I gave him a lot of shit last week, and I said, and I quote, the Seahawks will blow the brakes off the Patriots. And this wasn't like a game where the Seahawks looked bad by any means. In fact, it looked great. The Patriots played super well. Cam Newton especially. Cam, you played great. You did as well as you could have. The only thing you could have done better was score from the one. But Seahawks had your number on that one. And losing, losing by five to the Seahawks in Seattle – is nothing to be ashamed of. I hate to say it, but I think the Patriots are a team you reckon with. And I give them plenty of credit because I thought they were going to get destroyed by a good team. They did not. So they're my return of the King. Oh yeah. My return of the King. I don't know how much I've shot on him during the course of the podcast, but uh, Jamal Murray is a player that at the beginning of the bubble, I saw as a player who had the clutch gene but that was pretty much his only plus side of basketball for me. He was a good offensive player, but inconsistent, didn't play a lot of defense. And now I'm watching Jamal Murray coming back from 3-1 every other day, uh, playing basketball at an exceedingly high level. But when I look at his actual play style, the man looks like Steph Curry. I know that's a large thing to say, but dribble moves, attacking of the basket, his ability to step back and nail a deep high arcing three, Jamal Murray is everything that I think the NBA thought Trey Young was supposed to be. Like everyone's like, oh, Trey Young's the first Steph Curry disciple. It's like, no, Jamal Murray is. Jamal Murray is un- unguardable except for maybe LeBron James. Like that's something really only Steph Curry has ever put himself on, like, like in that conversation of. So I, I just want to say that Jamal Murray, you are balling far more than I could have ever predicted. And I want to shout that out because damn – Regardless of if you guys don't, or, you know, come back from three one again, I didn't expect a single thing you did to happen. So, just fantastic job. Our next award is the Bad Boy Award. You've been a bad, bad boy. You've been a bad Mine, boy. There it is. I needed it. Mine for this week. His name is Brian O'Halloran. I don't know if I said that correctly. He is the G the Red Sox. He did one really, really, really stupid thing this offseason. He had one of, if not the best, I'll say like the second best outfielder in the MLB in Mookie Betts. He trades Mookie Betts to the Dodgers. The Dodgers become the best team in baseball. The Red Sox have the third worst record in baseball. I believe there is a direct correlation between the two. You don't trade a superstar and not have success and have the two not, you know, be a part of each other. I, I looked at that trade and I was like, what are you, what are you doing? Like you're the Boston Red Sox. You're not a team that is supposed to ever rebuild. You're just, you're supposed to constantly be competing. Why would, why? There must've been something that made Mookie want to get out of Boston in my opinion, but man, like that's just, that was just a bad move by their GM. Well, I think they wanted to skate around the luxury tax mainly. Sure. And Mookie wanted a long-term deal as he very well deserved and got it from the Dodgers because Dodgers, they don't care about luxury tax for good reason. Pay the man. Amen. All right, Robbie. I know you've been waiting for this because I've been hyping it up 
like all day. My bad boy of the award is for Ty Lawson. Ty <laughs> Lawson, you've been a bad boy. And I yes, think you yes. know what I'm getting at. So Ty Lawson, a former NBA player, he now plays in the CBA, the Chinese Basketball Association. And I saw this, I think, last weekend, like Saturday or Sunday. And it was since deleted Instagram stories. But the one was a black screen with the text, Chinese woman got cakes on the low. <laughs> and then the next was a photo of him doing something that I cannot describe on this or probably face severe punishment from some, some like FCC regulations. Ty Lawson is now like banned from the CBA, which I think is pretty funny. But you've you've been a bad boy if you want to do that. So that's my bad boy of the week. I'm so glad. Very well deserved. That I that's that's perfect. That yeah, no, Ty Lawson, what the fuck were you doing, man? Come on, man. Um, yeah, wow, that was awesome. So bringing back a, an award from a previous few weeks, we have the unlucky award to the team or player. Had an unlucky week, didn't, you know, got the short end of the stick. And for me, <laughs> it's the Los Angeles Lakers for one very specific reason. They are down three games to one to the Denver Nuggets. Teams down th- or teams up 3-1 against the Denver Nuggets in this playoffs are 0-2. They have not won that series. The Denver Nuggets are in the most comfortable position they could possibly be in. They are right at home. Again, I don't think the, boss, the Denver Nuggets are going to end up winning this series, but LA needs to take this game as if they're down 3-1, not the other way around. But good luck, LA. Good luck, Denver. But good luck, LA. My lucky award goes to Justin Herbert because I had as good of a debut as you could have had against the defending Super Bowl champion. And for you to lose on the leg of Harris can Bucker kicking a field goal three times from 50 plus yards. That's a disappointment, but like kind of an internal disappointment for you. A lot of bright promise, but that is disappointing. And I would, if I was in that situation, I'd feel, I feel like, wow, I did everything I could. and We still lost. Yeah. It's a shades of week one Bengals. Um, move, moving in, got one last award, best moment. I had a lot of best moments this week. There were some great moments in sports. There's always great moments in sports, but uh, there, there were a bunch that I had to try and narrow it down from. You want to go first or second here? I'll, let's end the show on me. All right, for sure. Might so as well. In that case, my, game, or my, my pick for moment of the week was, in fact, Anthony Davis's step back three for the game in game two. Denver had kind of taken control of that game down the stretch. Uh, they, they were playing some interesting lineups, especially P.J. Dozier got some minutes, but he was playing very well. They were playing really great, but one key thing happened. Jeremy Grant was guarding LeBron James, and I think everyone watching that game knew LeBron James was supposed to get the basketball. And so Jeremy Grant said, yo, help to, Miles, or to Mason Plumlee. And Mason Plumlee, instead of fighting over the LeBron screen, kind of ducked into LeBron a little bit. That allowed Anthony Davis to catch the basketball one foot in front of the three-point line. Nice, simple step back. Not a huge contest from Plumlee. It was a gorgeous shot. Shout out, Anthony Davis. You, you got to start rebounding the basketball, man. But other than that, sensational. Big player hitting big time shots. That, that was a big one. But uh, I got to bite my tongue a little bit because the best moment of the week, in my opinion, was Greg Zerline's onside kick. I hate the Cowboys. That's no secret to anyone. The Falcons blew a 20-point lead, as they've always done before. But they were still, after letting the Cowboys score a bunch of touchdowns, 
They were still up. I believe they were up by one or two points with a minute left, and the Cowboys had no timeouts. All they had to do, recover the onside kick, you're good. And after the Eagles lost, Fox turned on the game, so I'm watching it. And Greg Zerline has the ball. He's, like, squeezing it against his hands. I see him just put the ball on the ground, and I'm like, wait, where's the tee? He just kind of puts it horizontal. I'm like, is he going to kick it without the tee? And I watch him just kick it to the left side, and the ball is spinning, and it's, like, probably five yards away from the 45. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know, it's going to go out of bounds, no big deal. And then I see the ball spin with, like, 400 RPM, just slowly spin, and it goes, like – Imagine a ball that's going foul, cuts back fair in baseball, and it spins and spins and spins. The Falcons play keep away because they don't want to touch it because it's not going 10 yards. It then goes 10 yards, and the Cowboys recover. They eventually kick a field goal to win. That hurt me as an Eagles fan, just poured salt in the wind, but third leg Greg, as I'm going to call him from now on, had a great onside kick, and props to you. I still hate you, Cowboys, but props <laughs> to you guys. That's a great play. That that was sick. That was the prettiest onside kick I've ever seen. Absolutely. I want to say doubt. this, though, before we end the show. The second prettiest onside kick I've ever seen came in our high school state championship game. I oh. want to tell you this, guys. We were down 21 to nothing. We were down 21 to nothing in the state championship. We fought all the way back. We had it at 21-7. And our kicker, a good buddy of mine, Donovan Berger. Donovan Berger. A gorgeous gorgeous kick it was kind of bouncing on the ground and, and I think it was planned that the last bounce would bounce up so someone would be able to catch it above their head and I'm blanking on the kid's name but the kick did exactly what it was supposed to do and went right through our lineman's hands out of bounds and it became the other team's football we had a chance at the end through a pick unfortunately lost the game but that kick that, that the seeing Greg's airlines kick actually reminded me of a kick from high school and I thought that was kind of cool thought it went on the theme with gym class all-star so I wanted to bring that up uh, before we come to the close here, but that is what we have for this week. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and the stories we've been giving out to you guys. If you have any other uh, recommendations for topics you want us to cover, please let us know. We're as always open to suggestions. Um, but for now, have a fantastic rest of your week. Enjoy the next uh, few games of basketball and the upcoming week of football. And we will be back with all of the updates next week. Let's go eat. Yeah. Shout out. Donnie football and uh, go Eagles. Actually, no, 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 no more go Eagles. That's what <laughs> lost us last week. Uh, uh, yeah, go Heat because they'll lose then. Oh, fuck you. I, as long as there's no Charles Barkley, I guarantee we're going to be just fine. <laughs> I guarantee. No. Take care, guys. Enjoy your day. And uh, thanks for listening. <laughs>